The reading this morning is Galatians 3, 23 to 29. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until, fa- until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our salvation. Amen. This is a a rare event. Um, it, It is not often that I can say that a sermon is backed by popular demand. Practically unique, in fact. Um, But this is something that I preached back in August. And the people who were there who heard it, and it was, of course, August, and therefore a small crowd, many people came up to me and said, you have to do that again when there is a bigger turnout. And here we have a bigger turnout, and here we have the same sermon again. And I, I hope it carries as well. This is Ask Andrew 5. And you remember, we've been stretching Ask Andrew out over the year. There's still an Ask Andrew 6 to come. And the question is, what was the transformative experience in your life that most influenced your views on the LGBTQ community? And I I think there is an aspect to this that may be a little bit disappointing to whoever asked the question. It's, It's sort of like when people ask how I was called to the ministry. I cannot report a mountaintop experience. I just have never had one of those great amazing epiphanies that people sometimes talk about. This, like many other things in my life, has been a journey with things developing and happening gradually. I grew up in an extremely religious home where the tone was for the most part evangelical. Although Evangelical Lutheran, which is a little bit different than some that you might have gotten accustomed to. And so for answering this particular question, there are two things that you need to understand about the influence of that household on my life. And the first is that I was taught to take the Bible literally for the most part. And I say for the most part because, for example, my family was actually okay with the idea of evolution. The seven-day creation story was not a big issue. They were somewhat uncomfortably prepared to accept Adam and Eve as symbolic. They encouraged me, though, to learn the Bible, to read it every day, to memorize portions, to study it. That was central. And the other thing to understand was the way I was taught homosexuality was a sin, pure and simple. Men who chose to sleep with other men were simply defying God. And it took me a long time, well into my teenage years, to start to wonder why two women together wasn't such a big issue. And and of course, I came to realize that that's a cultural thing. That's a bias 
of straight men to think that male gay sex is disgusting, but female gay sex is the stuff of fantasy. That's a cultural thing. And we were all touched by it. Then, in my studies, I got to McGill. I began to prepare for ministry. I studied Greek, the language of the New Testament, and, and my sense that the Bible had to be taken literally was shaken thoroughly. When you learn to read the Bible in the original languages, that forces you to consider which bits are original to the text that was first written, which bits have been edited, tinkered with, questioned and challenged over the centuries, and frankly, which bits are original but, but are culture-bound, because part of what we learned was history and the culture that produced the documents in the Bible. And also, to recognize that some words from Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic just don't translate easily into English. Uh, an example that we will know well from our own experience here <clears throat> is that there is no French word for home. There is, of course, a very important English word for home. Greek is even more different than French and English, and Hebrew even more. Now, I already knew <clears throat> that some of the laws of the Bible didn't get obeyed, we didn't obey all the laws of Moses, for example. We had pork in our diet quite a lot at our house. And, of course, we believed in helping lepers in much kinder ways than making them live outside society and wander around warning people of their presence. So the idea that things might progress from the olden days of the Bible was already there in my mind. But my study of scripture in the seminary opened my eyes to the chance that things that <coughs> might be apparently obvious in the Bible might actually have other interpretations. And I would need to consider those and not take things at face value all the time. I had in society, I mean, this was the 70s, I had encountered people for several years, who were already openly questioning all kinds of society's assumptions about relationships between men and women. Remember unisex clothing and unisex hair? The stuff that didn't actually look very good on anybody? But, but the attempt was there to blur the lines, to question the distinctions between genders and gender roles. And, and it, that included the gay and the straight stuff, but it included a whole lot of other things. And, and I was already open to some aspects of this. Scandinavian culture, as I had experienced, knows that women run the world. They just do. <laughs> I was struggling with the parts that related to same-sex relationships because that had been a very firm teaching in my household. When I got to McGill... There was a club there called Gay McGill. And I ended up at the opening of one of their meetings by mistake. I was just sitting there in the room eating pizza, and I hadn't realized that the club had rented it and were there about to have their meeting. And, and as I finished up my pizza and then left, it, it occurred to me as I was looking around the room that these were just ordinary people. 
There wasn't anything especially flamboyant going on. All of those stereotypes that happened on TV were not being played out there. And for that matter, most importantly, I didn't see anybody in that room that looked like they deserved to burn in hell. the same time as my thoughts about scripture were being challenged, I started to hear and to learn and to read about what medical and social sciences had to say about sexuality, about sexual orientation, about gays and lesbians, and, and frequently those who didn't fit into those sorts of categories either, which is that sexual orientation, near as we can tell, is hardwired. This is not a lifestyle choice, which is the phrase that was being bandied about at the time. It was something you could identify at a very young age, and it could not be changed. I already knew someone very well. I'd, I'd actually known him since hitting Sejep, who declared quite openly that before he met Christ, he was what he called <coughs> a raving homosexual and that Christ had cured him. Trouble was, he was a very nice guy who had no interest in girls and believed he had no choice but to abstain from guys. I began to see this kind of thing as a very serious problem. How could a loving God condemn gays to eternal torment for something that they had no choice in the matter of? How could God be so obviously unjust? That, it was a serious issue of divine justice for me, in addition to all of the scriptural elements and questions of authority. Eventually, I was ordained. It was while my views were still forming. I, I really was questioning very strongly, but I, I didn't have an entirely firm position yet. And that didn't become an issue when I was ordained because it was into the Presbyterian Church and they didn't ask questions. They very carefully didn't ask that question about what your views were on this. But it became a question. I was a commissioner to the General Assembly, which is similar to the General Council in the United Church. It's the national body, that the highest court of the Presbyterian Church. And I was there when the vote happened about whether or not to accept openly gay people as ministers. Now, what had happened was there was a, an openly gay student at Presbyterian College in Montreal, and the Presbytery of Montreal and the Presbyterian Church voted to ordain him and was proceeding to ordain him when a handful of people appealed that to the General Assembly. My dad, the representative elder, was one of those. And he was there at the General Assembly, voting on one side of the issue as I voted on the other. He and I still disagree to this day. And the vote at that meeting went very strongly against the ordination of openly gay people. And that's still the policy of the Presbyterian Church in Canada. I registered my dissent which is what you do in that system. You can do it in this system, but 
But the meaning in the Presbyterian system is you register your dissent to clear your conscience, and then after your dissent is registered, you are required to toe the line. You are required to support the position of the church. I was uncomfortable with this. I was uncomfortable enough that I had occasionally written op-ed articles for the London Free Press, and so I wrote one shortly after that meeting had finished, and I wrote one being critical of the Presbyterian Church's position. That was back in the days when A, newspapers were prepared to print articles from ministers, and B, pay for them. And strictly speaking, by doing this, I was violating my ordination vows. I've had my chance to object formally, and I did, and I should have been towing the line, but it bothered me so much I couldn't keep silent. And that article led to something else. Someone in London read it and called me up and asked to meet with me in the Presbyterian Church. He himself was Anglican. But he wanted to speak with any minister who was prepared to talk openly about this subject. He told me that he was gay that he was in a good relationship with his partner, that he still got along very well with his ex-wife and with his children. <clears throat> his children were older teens. They were extremely supportive when he came out of the closet, like they'd suspected something all along. And then after telling me all of this nice stuff, he went on to say, and I'm convinced I am going to hell. He felt like that was just the way it was. There was nothing he could do about it. He was convinced that God hated him. And his challenge to me was to convince him that he was wrong. To persuade him that he might not have no chance at salvation because he was gay. <clears throat> I did my best. We talked for hours. I failed. When he left, he was just as sad, just as convinced that he was damned, and I was terribly frustrated. And that was the real start of my switch into the United Church. I won't go into all the twists and turns of that. That was pretty complicated and a long story. But I was simply uncomfortable staying within the ministry of the Presbyterian Church. About that time, I became aware of a movement within the evangelical churches in the United Church, and it eventually, of course, started to bleed into Canada. That always is the way that it works. But it was extremely hostile to the LGBTQ community, and it wasn't called that at the time, but it would be soon. And some churches openly posted on their signs things like, God hates gays. This was before the internet, and when the internet came along, it just got worse. That offended me deeply. I had come out of the evangelical movement myself, but I didn't think there was much to be done about it. I knew how it worked, and I figured they would just keep on doing what they were doing. But it offended me. Now, that feeling that there's nothing to be done has changed over the years. And I've discovered a sense that it is very important to really what I believe is to speak up for God, to fight a message that encourages 
hatred in the name of God. Because that feels to be the most unchristian thing that anybody could claim. And it still goes on today. In part, all of this was affected by a couple that I met in my next church. I'd gone down to Chatham and become minister of the United Church there. For them, I conducted a same-sex marriage. At this point, my only one so far. And I expected it to be strange. I was nervous. They were kind of nervous too. But it was a very loving experience. It was a real marriage in every sense of the word. And my outrage at the evangelical God hates gays movement grew. It combined with my experience of real people wanting to live their lives, wanting to get married, wanting to manage in a hostile society. And that motivated me to serve on the two Ottawa Presbytery Committees that led this Presbytery to become an affirming ministry of the United Church. And, and what that means is it becomes a self-declared welcoming space for people in the LGBTQ community. And I learned a lot in the two years where those committees ran and we had educational events. And I'm still learning to this day. Here at Knox, we had already had, long before those committees were formed, we'd had our debate about same-sex marriage. And the, that came about because someone contacted me and said, can you do a same-sex marriage? And I said, I don't know. We have no policy. So I came and asked the executive, and they said, well, we better have a policy. And I told the couple, sorry, I can't until we develop a policy. It's going to take some time. They went off, and somebody else had the wedding for them. I was able to put them in contact with someone. But it led to this congregation deciding where it stood. And I was very pleased to see the outcome. But I was even more pleased by the discussion that led to it. And I realized that I had some prejudices of my own that were challenged. I had assumed that the young would be in favor and the older members would be opposed. Boy, was I wrong. Some of the oldest members were some of the most fervent supporters of same-sex marriage. And I was delighted. And when the chance to be part of the Pride Parade came along, I decided to attend. And I decided to have a good time. It's a parade after all. <laughs> and I put on the old mission and service hat with its rainbow theme. And I put on this. And I put on my clergy collar. That was all deliberate, particularly the clergy caller. And, and the first number of years where I went, I was one of a very small number of people, sometimes the only one, wearing a clergy collar openly. There were other ministers there, but they were dressed with street clothes. That bothered me. And, and it, it was a challenge sometimes, because wearing the collar made me a bit of a target, I was challenged by people who were there protesting against the pride parade. I had 
one person who left his protest on the side in front of the parliament buildings to join and to walk with me for about four blocks, arguing why I shouldn't be there. Quite fascinating. I've had people from a little bit more of a distance show really, really open hostility to me because I was a minister supporting the pride parade. But by the same token, I have also been the recipient of heartfelt thanks of people on the sidelines simply shouting out things like, thank you for being welcoming. Those are people who have felt rejected and excluded by the church, maybe even rejected and excluded by God. They weren't in the parade. They weren't being radical. They were just joyed, overjoyed to see the church represented. And I think that's the message that really motivates me now. The love of God for all people, the welcome of God to all people, and the chance to stand against a message of religious hatred that tarnishes the name Christian in so many people's lives. We can offer people something so much better than that message of hate. I believe that the welcome that we bring truly reflects the message of Christ in this 21st century world. Amen.